Chapter 9 of Gunman's Reckoning by Max Brand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In a way, it was an awful tribute, for one great fact grew upon him that the Colonel represented almost perfectly the power of absolute evil. Donnegan was not a squeamish sort, but the fat, smiling face of Macon filled him with unutterable aversion. A dozen times he would have left the room, but a silken thread held him back, the thought of Lou. "'I shall be terse and entirely frank,' said the colonel, and at once Donnegan reared triple guard and balanced himself for attack or defense. "'Between you and me,' went on the fat man, "'deceptive words are folly, a waste of energy.' He flushed a little. "'You are, I believe, the first man who has ever laughed at me. The click of his teeth, as he snapped them on this sentence, seemed to promise that he should also be the last. So I tear away the veils which made me ridiculous, I grant you, Donnegan. We have met each other just in time. True, said Donnegan, you have a task for me that promises a lot of fighting, and in return I get lodgings for the night. Wrong, wrong. I offer you much more. I offer you a career of action in which you may forget the great sorrow which has fallen upon you, and in the battles which lie before you, you will find oblivion for the sad past which lies behind you. Here Donnegan sprang to his feet, with his hand caught at his breast, and he stood quivering in an agony. Pain worked him as an anger would do, and his slender frame swelling, his muscles taunt, he stood like a panther, enduring the torture, because knows it is folly to attempt to escape. "'You are a human devil,' Donnegan said at last, and he sank back upon his stool. For a moment he was overcome, his head falling upon his breast, and even when he looked up, his face was terribly pale and his eyes dull. His expression, however, cleared swiftly, and aside, from the perspiration which shone on his forehead, it would have been impossible, ten seconds later, to discover that the blow of the colonel had fallen upon him. All of this the colonel had observed and noted with grim satisfaction. Not once did he speak until he saw that all was well. "'I am sorry,' he said at length in a voice almost as delicate as the voice of Lou Macon. "'I am sorry, but you forced me to say more than I wished to say.' Donnegan brushed the apology aside. His voice became low and hurried. Let's get on in the matter. I'm eager to learn from you, Colonel. Very well. Since it seems that there is a place for both of our interests in this matter, I shall run on in my tale and make it, as I promised you before, absolutely frank and curt. I shall not descend into small details. I shall give you a main sketch of the high points for all men of mind are apt to be confused by the face of a thing, whereas the heart of it is perfectly clear to them. He settled into his narrative. You have heard of the corner? No. Well, that is not strange, but a few weeks ago gold was found in the sands where the valley of Young Muddy and Cristobal Rivers join. The corner is a long, wide triangle of sand, and the sand is filled with a gold deposit brought down from the headwaters of both rivers and precipitated here. Where one current meets the other, 
and reduces the resultant stream to sluggishness. The sands are rich, very rich. He had become a trifle flushed as he talked, and now, perhaps, to cover his emotion, he carefully selected a cigarette from the humidor beside him and lighted it without haste before he spoke another word. Long ago I prospected over that valley. A few weeks ago it was brought to my attention again. I determined to stake some claims and work them, but I could not go myself. I had to send a trustworthy man. Whom should I select? There was only one possible. Jack Landis is my ward. A dozen years ago his parents died, and they sent him to my care, for my fortune was then comfortable. I raised him with as much tenderness as I could have shown my own son. I lavished on him the affection, and... Here Donnegan coughed lightly. The fat man paused, and observing that this hypocrisy did not draw the veil over the bright eyes of his guest, he continued. In a word, I made him one of my family, and when the need for a man came, I turned to him. He is young, strong, active, able to take care of himself. At this, Donnegan pricked his ears. He went, accordingly, to the corner and staked the claims and filed them as I directed. I was right. There was gold. Much gold. It panned out in nuggets. He made an indescribable gesture, and, through his strong fingers, Donnegan had a vision of yellow gold pouring. But there is seldom a discovery of importance claimed by one man alone. This was no exception. A villain named William Lester, known as a scoundrel over the length and breadth of the cattle country, claimed that he had made the discovery first. He even went so far as to claim that I had obtained my information from him, and he tried to jump the claim staked by Jack Landis, whereupon Jack, very properly, shot Lester down, not dead, unfortunately, but slightly wounded. In the meantime, the rush for the corner started. In a week, there was a village. In a fortnight, there was a town. In a month, the corner had become the talk of the ranges. Jack Landis found in the claims a mint. He sent me back a mere souvenir. The fat man produced from his vest pocket a little chunk of yellow, and with a dexterous motion, whipped it at Donnegan. It was done so suddenly, so unexpectedly, that the wanderer was well-nigh taken by surprise. But his hand flashed up and caught the metal before it struck his face. He found in the palm of his hand a nugget weighing perhaps five ounces, and he flicked it back to the colonel. He sent me the souvenir, but that was all. Since that time I have waited. Nothing has come. I sent for word and I learned that Jack Landis had betrayed his trust, fallen in love with some undesirable woman of the mining camp, denied my claim to any of the gold to which I had sent him. Unpleasant news? Yes. Ungrateful boy? Yes. But my mind is hardened against adversity. Yet this blow struck me close to the heart, because Landis is engaged to marry my daughter Lou. At first I could hardly believe in his disaffection, but the truth has at length been borne home to me. The scoundrel has abandoned both Lou and me. Donnegan repeated slowly, Your daughter loves this chap? The colonel allowed his glance to narrow, and he could do this the more safely because at this moment 
Donnegan's eyes were wandering into the distance. In that unguarded second, Donnegan was defenseless, and the colonel read something that set him beaming. She loves him, of course, he said, and he is breaking her heart with his selfishness. He is breaking her heart, echoed Donnegan. The colonel raised his hand and stroked his enormous chin. Decidedly, he believed that things were getting on very well. This is the position, he declared. Jack Landis was threatened by the wretch Lester and shot him down. But Lester was not single-handed. He belongs to a wild crew led by a mysterious fellow of whom no one knows very much, a deadly fighter, it is said, and a keen organizer and handler of men, red-haired, wild, smooth, a bundle of contradictions. They call him Lord Nick, because he has the pride of a nobleman and the cunning of the devil. He has gathered a few chosen spirits and cool fighters, the peddler, Joe Ricks, Harry Masters, all celebrated names in the cattle country. They worship Lord Nick partly because he is a genius of crime and partly because he understands how to guide them so that they may rob and even kill with impunity. His peculiarity is his ability to keep within the bounds of the law. If he commits a robbery, he always first establishes marvelous alibis and throws the blame towards someone else. If it is the case of a killing, it is always the other man who is the aggressor. He has been before a jury a half a dozen times, but the devil knows the law and pleads his own case with a tongue that twists the heart out of the stupid jurors. You see, no common man. And this is the leader of the group of which Lester is one of the most debased members. He had no sooner been shot than Lord Nick himself appeared. He had his followers with him. He saw Jack Landis, threatened him with death, and made Jack swear that he would hand over half of the profits of the mines to the gang, of which I suppose Lester gets his due proportion. At the same time, Lord Nick attempted to persuade Jack that I, his adopted father, you might say, was really in the wrong, and that I had stolen the claim from this wretched Lester. He waved this disgusting accusation into a mist, and laughed with hateful softness. The result is this. Jack Landis draws a vast revenue from the mines. Half of it he turns over to Lord Nick, and Lord Nick in return gives him absolute freedom and backing in the camp, where he is and probably will continue the dominant factor. As for the other half, Landis spends it on this woman, with whom he has become infatuated, and not a penny comes through to me. Colonel Macon leaned back in his chair, and his eyes became fixed upon a great distance. He smiled, and the blood turned cold in the veins of Donnegan. Of course, this adventurous, this Nelly Lebrun, plays hand in glove with Lord Nick and his troop. Unquestionably, she shares her spoils, so that nine-tenths of the revenue from the mines is really flowing back through the hands of Lord Nick, and Jack Landis has become a silly figurehead. He struts about the streets of the corner as a great mine owner, and with the power of Lord Nick behind him, not one of the people of the gambling houses and dance halls dare cross him, so that Jack has come to consider himself a great man. Is that clear? 
Donnegan had not yet drawn his gaze entirely back from the distance. This is the possible solution, went on the colonel. Jack Landis must be drawn away from the influence of this Nelly Lebrun. He must be brought back to us and shown his folly, both as regards to the adventurous and Lord Nick. For as long as Nelly has a hold on him, just so long Lord Nick will have his hand in Jack's pocket. You see how beautifully their plans and their work dovetail. How, therefore, am I to draw him from Nelly? There is only one way. Send my daughter to the camp. Send Lou to the corner, and let one glimpse of her beauty turn the shabby prettiness of this woman to a shadow. Lou is my last hope. At this, Donnegan wakened. His sneer was not a pleasant thing to see. Send her to a new mining camp? Colonel Macon, you have the gambling spirit. You are willing to take great chances? So, so, murmured the colonel, a little taken back. But I should never send her, except with an adequate protector. An adequate protector? Even against these celebrated gunmen who run the camp, as you have already admitted? An adequate protector. You are the man. Donnegan shivered. I? I take your daughter to the camp and play her against Nellie Lebrun to win back Jack Landis. Is that the scheme? It is. Ah, murmured Donnegan, and he got up and began to walk the room, white-faced. The colonel watched him in a silent agony of anxiety. She truly loves this Landis? asked Donnegan, swallowing. A love that has grown out of their long intimacy together since they were children. Bah, calf-love! Let the fellow go, and she will forget him. Hearts are not broken in these days by disappointments and love affairs. The colonel writhed in his chair. But, Lou, you did not know her heart, he suggested. If you looked closely at her, you would have seen that she is pale. She does not suspect the truth. But I think she is wasting away, because Jack hasn't written for weeks. He saw Donnegan wince under the whip. It is true, murmured the wanderer. She is not like others, heaven knows. He turned. And what if I fail to bring over Jack Landis with the sight of Lou? The colonel relaxed. The great crisis was past, and Donnegan would undertake the journey. In that case, my dear lad, there is an expedient so simple that you astonish me by not perceiving it. If there is no way to wean Landis away from the woman, then get him alone and shoot him through the heart. In that way, you remove from the life of Lou a man unworthy of her, and you also make the minds come to the heir of Jack Landis, namely myself. And in the latter case, Mr. Donnegan, be sure, oh, be sure, that I should not forget who brought the minds into my hands. End of chapter 9